0: good afternoon, and welcome to Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, reunited once again with the great Ellie Jacobs, a man as qualified to start an NFL game at quarterback as at least a third of these jokers. Thank you, Ellie, for captaining the ship so ably during my long and stately process through Europe. Frank, it's always good to be back with you, Uh, and thank you for
1: bringing the Mariners Astrolab back so that we can actually figure out where we're going and we're not just floating adrift like certain political parties in this country. Uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everybody to subscribe and rate us on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship, and that's ship with a P as in pathetic.
0: Yes, uh, yes, which refers, of course, to our many, many shameful enemies who are a legion, and perhaps not as numerous as our legion of, of listeners, but still legion. Yeah, we have uh, a legion of enemies. We have a legion of yeah. We have a legion of enemies and an army of followers. An army is greater than, than an army of listeners. An army is larger than a legion. Therefore, we win. We win. Of such of such mathematics is great victory made, Ellie. I followed. Don't look, I don't, followed. Look too, don't look too carefully at it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this one may be a little bit uh, short this week. Uh, we are. Uh, but we have a few things that we want to talk about, uh, and it's it's good to be back to be bathed in the uh, in the the, you know, the sweet and uh, and ultimately suffocating embrace of American politics. Uh, first and foremost, uh, uh, we have some not profound observations to offer on Democratic victory, particularly on Tuesday, particularly in Virginia. I would like to start by offering uh, congratulations to a fair number of uh, of uh, taking ship listeners who were involved in that victory. Uh, the victory of governor Ralph, uh, governor elect Ralph Northam, excuse me, uh, and a number of, uh, and also, uh, state level victories, uh, at, in, uh, state house level victories in Virginia. Uh, particularly, I want to single out, uh, a friend of the podcast, a guest of the podcast, Negus de Bebe for her, uh, for her excellent and uh, sublime and supreme contribution to that campaign. Congratulations, Negus, well done. Um, uh, you know, I said we had some not profound observations to offer on this. This is being the victory in uh, in Virginia and and, and in uh, local elections all over the country, in New Jersey and so forth. Uh, they're being widely interpreted as very good news for Democrats. There's not a lot to say about that because it is. This is just a really good thing if you're looking at this and you're really encouraged about it. Uh, what may happen for the Democratic Party in coming years as a result of new energy and some uh, some resistance to the election of Trump? Uh, I, I that's, that is not an unwise thing. I mean, don't don't go nuts here. This is going to be hard. Uh, we lost the uh, the by elections or the what would be called the by- the special elections for a reason, uh, but we won this we won these for a reason as well. Uh, this is a really good thing. Congratulations to everyone who's involved.
1: Yeah, uh, you know we're not going to have a whole lot to say about this because a lot has been said. If anybody just wants to go look at the Washington Post website from Wednesday, they basically analyzed every aspect of this. Um, You know, my perspective is: had we had Democrats lost the Virginia gubernatorial race or the New Jersey gubernatorial race, um, that would be reason to panic. Winning both is not necessarily um, cause for utter celebration; more just sort of. Great. We put our pants on in the morning, um, which is obviously very important and something that we that as a party we have neglected to do for quite some time. So it's good that we've now figured out how to put pants back on or a skirt, whatever. I'm not trying you know, not trying to be in any way uh, um, preclude anyone. Um, But I think what the, the interesting thing to look at and take away is really. That. What we're seeing in terms of this idea of Trumpism without Trump, and Frank, this is something you and I actually, we talked about a great deal the last time we recorded in person um, about this idea of does, and we, we were talking about uh, whether or not Trump runs again in 2020 and how that all works. It was a lengthy conversation where we talked about, you know, maybe there's a third party, maybe he runs as a third party, maybe he doesn't run, but he anoints someone like Tom Cotton or something as his successor, um, but what we saw here was somebody Ed Gillespie, who um, is about as swampy and mainstream Republican as you can possibly get.
0: Yeah, he could be the he could be the mascot. And right now, I'm picturing and and I want to I want you to vi- to visualize this, dear listeners, because I I want you nothing so much as to I want nothing so much for you as to to never sleep again. I'm picturing a like a like a sporting mascot. Sport, you know, those, those, the, that type of, uh, that type of material, that type of aesthetic. I'm picturing a sports mascot of Ed Gillespie, of Ed Gillespie as the mascot of mainstream Republicanism. Uh, and then potentially yeah. Ed Gillespie wearing an Ed Gillespie mascot suit. Yeah.
1: Something, something, you know, chinless. Yeah. Uh, and, and as
0: we, and as we learned from this campaign, uh, um, spineless. Spineless, yeah, exactly. I mean, just that's exactly right. It's chinless, it's spineless. Somehow, this this mascot this mascot must be worn by someone who is significantly ham fed. Uh, which is my my uh, the what the word the expression that always comes to me when I think about when I see a picture of Ed Gillespie. I think this is a man who's been ham fed for a long time. Uh, you know, so anyway, I yeah. said Gillespie, yeah, but, ham-fed but, you know, ham mascot of the of mainstream Republicanism. But what we saw was, and the way the numbers kind of broke
1: down, is there are a couple counties that went strong for Trump in, um, a year ago that went strong for Gillespie this time around based on his Trump-esque um, commercials and some of the things that he was saying. Uh, what we continue to see, and this is something, again, Frank and I spoke about a couple weeks ago, months ago at this point, um, and this goes back a little bit to what uh, Rahm Emanuel uh, has apparently been preaching to the DTRIP, um, that this is going to be a battle for suburbia in 2018 and 2020. And suburbia is where you have independents, you have people that are fiscally conservative, socially uh, progressive. And those are the people who are that it's really going to, you know, they're going to be the people that you have to get a get out to vote and be appeal to in some way, shape or form and gillespie blew that because he latched onto trump's teat uh, sagging teat i would imagine um, and what we're, i think we're going to see in uh, as 2018 rolls out we're already seeing a lot of these republicans who are ed gillespie like in the fact that they are swamp creatures uh, deciding they're not running again um you know i think i mentioned this last week joseph copsper in uh outside of austin who's running in texas uh, he's now the the person whose seat he's, he's running against is now not running against. So that race has suddenly become a lot more interesting than I thought it would have been originally. Uh, but getting back to this idea of suburbia, uh, it's going to be up to Democrats to find candidates that can win in those suburban areas. Um, and that's a very different candidate than someone that can win on, you know, Manhattan's upper East side or, um, well, Atlanta or Los Angeles. Um, so I would say that that's kind of the lesson, from this virginia thing is that this is going to be a battle for suburbia and democrats really need to go out of their way to find candidates that represent um ideologically um i mean they're just personal stories um the districts that they're running in
0: sure and i know that this is exactly right i mean i think if we were to interpret this win as uh, the, the you know this these the victories in Virginia and New Jersey and various cities and, and uh, local elections across the country on Tuesday, if we to if we were to interpret that as a sign that anything with a D is going to win, uh, that would be a mistake. Uh, there is cl- what you know what what that in how you drill a little bit more deeply in what that means, I think. Uh, is, there's Rahm's take, which has some, has some validity. There's some other interpretations out there. Your point, though, that finding candidates who have a good, a good story to tell uh, and are able to tell that story well about why they are doing this, I think is, is absolutely right. Because if the lesson from this is all you have to do is go out and tell voters that you don't like Trump— that would that would be a mistake. That's not going to be enough. And I, one of the points that I want to make about Ralph Northam's campaign, and it sounds like the, the putting on your pants metaphor works reasonably well. Uh, if, if if assuming if, if putting on your pants was an incredibly difficult process, as it is for me, uh, you know, so you know it works. If putting on your pants is a really big, is a really essential thing you have to be able to do, um, but was nonetheless really really hard and really easy to do badly. Uh, Then certainly the Democratic Party put on its pants; wouldn't have gotten Ralph Northam elected. Uh, So it's going to sound like I am trivializing that that success a little bit here, but I do want to, and I am not, and I'll tell you why in a second. But it's worth pointing out here that the election of a Democrat in the odd year in the in the year a year after a a Republican has been elected is not odd in Virginia. Uh, Virginia has historically gone cyclic, gone counter cyclically. Uh, New Jersey, I think, pretty much the same way. But Virginia has for decades. Uh, When there's a Republican president, they elect Democratic governors. When there's a Democratic president, they elect uh, Republican governors. The oddity here was Terry McAuliffe, actually, uh, the first uh, Virginia governor to be uh, of the party of the sitting president uh, since, uh, let's see here, Uh, I'm going back to 1966, Mills Goodwin, Mills Godwin was elected uh, during the presidency of. Uh, actually, no, no, no. Then there was a, then there was a Republican. So, 1966, and 1970. Uh, they're they're a little bit lined up. 1978. Sorry, I'm going back into this lesson of this 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 uh, this lesson of Virginia gubernatorial history. Uh, but it but 19 yeah, the 19s. It's been since the early 1970s. 1974. Uh, was the last time that Virginia elected a governor of the same party this is, as the sitting president. So Terry McAuliffe was an unusual election for Virginia because he was a Democrat elected under a Democratic president. Uh, you could look like Ralph Northam's, you could interpret Ralph Northam's campaign as just a a a, a, a return to uh, form uh, for that state and for the Democratic party there. All of that's and I think there probably is some truth to it, Virginians seem to like voting against the, power, the party that's in power. And I, I say that because my own great, my my own home state, the great state of New Mexico, does the same thing in our off-year cycles. Um, I, all of that said, uh, this was a big win. This is a nine-point win uh, that is a, one, I think one of the biggest wins since the nineteen eighties. Uh, Northam was a was a good candidate. I know all those people out there who are writing their how well who are writing the like how Northam fucked it up uh, process stories. Uh, are extremely disappointed. They have every reason to be disappointed. Uh, but they should never have been writing those in the first place. Ralph uh, Northam was a good candidate. It was a good campaign. Uh, and you and you get. And this is my point to this is my point to all professional politicos out there, and especially for political critics, uh, you get points for running a good campaign in a good year and winning big. That is a good thing. That is not something to be trivialized. It's incredibly hard. I've been part of campaigns that didn't do it. Uh, so, congratulations and, and well done to everyone who was part of this victory. But in, in many respects, there was a this was a good campaign that ran into that also ran with some structural advantages. Uh, if we overinterpret those, to get back to your point, Ellie, if we overinterpret what those structural advantages are, uh, we're you know we're up against it. We're looking we're looking we are playing for disappointing results in twenty eighteen if we if we uh, overplay this.
1: Yeah, I don't want to spend a whole ton more time on this, um, particularly uh, we're not going to bring up Donna Brazil. We're not going to talk about the book at all. I, I mentioned it briefly last week, and we're not going to talk about her book and her publicity tour and trying to bring things up and right versus left. Um, the only thing that uh, and we'll move on right after this, I think uh, the only point I'll make about the elections, uh, the, the camp, the elections this past Tuesday, uh was Bill de Blasio in New York, who um, I was once again very happy to vote against. Um, and I have been able to vote against him in every primary. Well, not when he was a city council member, because I don't live in Brooklyn. Uh, but once he moved on to public advocate or mayor, uh, during both primaries and the generals, I've been able to vote against him each and every time, which I, I'm very pleased about. Um, his entire campaign was against Trump. Um, he basically ignored his Republican um, opponent. Uh, for good reason. I mean, it's New York and there, you know, it it was very unlikely he was going to lose. But he ran a campaign against Donald Trump. And uh, even in his victory speech, he was just talking about Trump. And I found him to sound silly. Uh, There's no better word for it. He just sounded silly that he's talking about running a city that is, uh, you know, yeah, there's been many Republican uh, mayors over the course of the last 20 years, but um, they've all kind of you know run as uh, uh, governed as socially moderates even rudy Giuliani at the time. He wasn't the lunatic that he is now um But I think that there are democrats out there who will follow this Sort of bill de blasio pseudo progressive playbook where as long as we bash trump we will be okay And as frank and I have now, you know, kind of hopefully drilled into everybody's head. That's not the
0: case Yes it's not enough. you got to be for something. Uh, and fortunately, in the case of Ralph Northam and some of the other people who won on Tuesday, that was very clearly the case. Uh, they were obviously very strongly for something. They made that case well, painstakingly built in, at least in Northam's case, built his coalition um, and, and ran a really good campaign. And this is the, the lesson. If you run that really good campaign and the structural advantage is there, you win by nine points. Um, but if you run right. that really good campaign and the structural advantage is there, uh, isn't there, uh, then we're into squeaker. And that's where you're really glad you stood for something instead of just running against someone. Speaking right. of being, speaking of being against, uh, and and here is here is you know uh, here is something that I think you know America. I go away for two weeks, and and people start getting strange delusions, uh, and that strange delusion uh, is the uh, is that a constitutional convention would be a good thing uh, in in my absence, and I have to be I have, you know and I, I accept full responsibility for this. Uh, I, I abandoned my post. Uh, and in my absence, another state legislature, uh, agreed, uh, to hold a constitutional convention. This was Wisconsin state legislature, uh, agreed either earlier this week or late last that a holding a, they, whatever they have to sign in order to, in order to approve a constitutional convention, uh, they signed that thing that makes them the 28th state, uh, to agree to a constitutional convention. You need 34. Uh, it is... Unlikely given the combination of Republican state legislatures and uh, particularly unlike more even more unlikely after Tuesday, but given the re- combination of Republican state legislatures and Republican governors who have to sign these things, uh, it is unlikely that there will actually be a constitutional convention. But I want to bring this up to our listeners' attention so you understand uh, the you know just the genuine peril in America of American democracy at the moment. This constitutional convention. The primary object of it, although not the exclusive object, uh, the primary object of it is to consider uh, a balanced budget amendment, and we're going to talk about that in a second. Uh, but the primary purpose of this constitution, of this proposed constitutional convention, is to consider a balanced budget amendment. Uh, but I want to be clear: if we get a republic, if we get a constitutional convention, it will be because Republican legislatures and Republican governors have proposed it, passed it. And pushed for it, uh, it will be extremely hard to limit the agenda to just one thing. Uh, even if limiting it to just that one, even if even if limited to just one thing, it would still be genuinely awful. Uh, but if you were able to get, I uh, just picture what would happen if a bunch of delegates uh, who you know, gather at the behest and direction of of Republican legislatures and Republican governors around the country, uh, and with the ability to amend the Constitution of the United States. You know the idea that they would discipline themselves to staying to one to staying to one subject uh, is is absolutely laughable uh, and we are six states away from there there's six states away from that happening If they were at 10 or 12 this wouldn't even be worth talking about there's always some degree of constituency for this sort of thing uh, but more than half of the states in the Union have signed on for a very dramatic and, and indeed a deeply concerning uh, a constitutional act. I'd like to point out before we get on to the one agenda item of that, of the proposed Constitutional Convention, that there has been one Constitutional Convention in the the United States history, and the result of it was to rip up the thing that came before and to create something entirely different. Now, in that case, there was a massive upgrade from the Articles of Confederation to the Constitutional Convention, but it's just a good example of the way that, uh, you know, the idea that a Constitutional Convention can be a a limited act seems a little bit nuts to me. Uh, So, okay. What is? But even if they were able to keep the constitutional convention limited to the one agenda item uh, that they all agree on, uh, that most of the people that, are, that have uh, that have proposed and pushed for the constitutional convention have agreed should be its focus, that is the balanced budget act. The idea that we need to amend the Constitution of the United States to uh, require that the federal government's budget always be balanced. Oh boy.
1: This well, we should before yeah. we dive into this, we should yes. mention that there are any number of states, and I don't know the number off the top of my head, and I apologize about that, any number of states who have balanced budget uh, uh, rules in specific states.
0: Yes, um, a number of states have passed the equivalent of this. Some of them have amended their own constitutions to to do so or have otherwise passed statutes that say the state always has to have a balanced budget.
1: Right, and also to differentiate for people... Um, Between a constitutional convention like we voted on in New York, which would have been about the New York Constitution versus what we're currently talking about, which is a constitutional convention of the states that come together to discuss, as Frank just said, amending the the United States Constitution.
0: Yes, that's an excellent point. Yeah, sorry about that. We are are talking about uh, 28 states, uh, six states away from being able to amend the federal Constitution of the United States. And a big player
1: in all of this is uh, ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, And if people want to take a step back and think about um, evil groups that are doing bad things for nefarious purposes, uh, ALEC is right up there with the NRA.
0: Yeah, this is this is an organization that has done, I think, probably more to upend the proper functioning of American democracy than almost anyone.
1: Yeah. Everything from uh, the air you breathe to the water you drink to, uh, I mean, they are- The vote you're not able to cast. Yeah. These guys, they are incredibly successful and they work at the state and local level. Um, So most people are unaware of what's going on. These sons of bitches, they know what's up. They're run very, very well. They're very well funded by mostly corporate interests. Um, But getting back to Uh, this idea of the 28th state to talk about uh, doing the balanced budget. So I just wanted to mention that uh, many states, uh, probably most of the states that uh, those of us who are listening to this live in, uh, have balanced budgets, uh, uh, rules and regulations in those states. The government does not. And this is something that um, uh, Gingrich's revolution ran on, was a balanced budget amendment, if memory serves. Uh, It's something that has... Uh, regularly been on the mind of Republicans for at least the last twenty five years.
0: Yeah, and and it is it. it there's the reason that uh, the great political journalist Charlie Pierce refers to. It. I think he calls it the worst idea in the world, or that some sounds sort. about right. The worst idea in in maybe the worst idea in America. Maybe he doesn't restrict it to the world because there's a lot of bad ideas out there in the world. But but this, from a policy perspective, is actually on the short list of the worst ideas in America. Uh, and the reason for it is simple. Uh, governments occasionally have to borrow. It's it's the nature it's the nature of government. Occasionally you have to borrow. Occasionally you're going to run a deficit. Uh, the United States government, the United States of, of America, despite how it has sometimes felt over the last year, is going to be around for a very long time. Uh, and as a result, taking on debt is not something that the government can't somehow can't afford to do. The government doesn't get into trouble on taking on debt. Not really until the, until the, the, uh, until the interest payment, the annual interest payment that you have to make in order to service that debt becomes so significant that it genuinely subverts your ability to perform your other duties to provide other services and so forth. Uh, and then, right. that, and, that, con- that's, and, and contrary to what some
1: Republicans will suggest, uh, the deficit, uh, the national debt is out of control. Um, that's $10 trillion or something like that. Uh, the deficit, um, Whereas you always hear Republicans go batshit when there's a Democrat in the White House about the deficit, uh, despite the fact that the only president in recent history to run a balanced budget was Bill Clinton, um, uh, the deficit is
0: more or less uh, under control and tamed. Yeah, it's it is not. Yeah, that's exactly it is not in some, somehow an existential threat. And the debt, and, and as you're right, the debt is the debt is quite high. Uh, it becomes an issue primarily if the interest payment on the debt becomes something that be, be, uh, prevents you from passing other legislative priorities and otherwise functioning as a country, which is not a state that has arrived for us yet. Uh, it, it's possible to get there. Uh, we've seen, but that usually happens in borderline failed economies or completely failed economies like Greece. I mean, that was where the servicing of existing debt becomes such a big budget line that you can't really afford to do anything else. Uh, that's when you're legit going bankrupt. But the idea that we need to somehow that the idea that a that a deficit is somehow so evil that we need to uh, make that we need to and and again like to be clear, Ellie and I are not against balancing budgets. Um, you do it uh, when I mean, I you can, I,
1: uh, but to yeah. regulate it as a necessity to to disallow you from needing to budget when there's a natural disaster or uh, there's a war
0: or. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, 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 for example, as one might, you start a war in Iraq that you have no idea how to pay for. I mean, look, you, you know, and then you cut,
1: and then you cut taxes because It it could happen to any of us.
0: Who amongst us, I ask you, has hasn't
1: started a war based on faulty intelligence and attacked the one of three countries that we claimed were axis of evil that didn't
0: actually have a nuclear program? Yes, that's exactly. I mean, you know, look. That's that's exactly right. It could happen to any of us. We've all we've all done it. You know, we all make uh, you know childish teenage mistakes. But and, but to be fair, it is not just in the event that you feel like starting a decades-long conflict in another country. Well, uh, well, not quite decades long, but our commitment there you know remains uh, in one form or another. Uh, but it, you know, it's not just that you feel like starting a starting a massive war that you have no idea how to pay for. But also, let's say you've got a population bump coming. Um, And you need to be able, you have commitments made to those, to the upcoming bump of retirees. Um, You need to be able to pay for those services Uh, that, that, you know, that bump is eventually going to pass through because that's the way mortality works. Uh, But in order to be able to pay for that, at some point you may need to borrow a little bit to get through this added expense, right? Like that's, again, if your anticipation is that your country is going to be around a long time, uh, you know, provided that you are structuring your budgets in such a way that you are, that the deficit, that the payments on your debt, I know I keep saying this, but this is it, it only becomes relevant if the payments on your debt prevent you from being able to govern. We are a mile away from that position.
1: Yeah, there was a, an asinine uh, op-ed by an economics professor, uh, it was either the New York Times or the Washington Post, I can't remember, just absolutely asinine, where basically he said deficits don't matter at all, and it's bullshit that we even talk about them. That is not true, and that is not what Frank and I are advocating. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it, but again, they they have a specific. They have a, They are relevant in in a specific set of limited circumstances. What what I think the reason that what I think that professor was reacting to, uh, and and, and I, it's good to have someone at least at the edge there because for a long time, uh, poe faced seriousness about the debt was kind of a. I mean, it was it was very it was a very in thing in D.C. for quite some time, uh, and and is sort of making its comeback now. Uh, it is, you know, we are not against balanced budgets. They are, they can be quite good. Paying down debts is a good thing. It reduces the amount of interest you have to pay and it enables you to use future income for for government services. And stock Um, markets love it. Yeah. It's, there's, there's all sorts of, there's all sorts of good reasons why governments should, should pay down their debt. It has good, it has, you know, it has good effects all around. Also, it's just Um, good governance. It's just good. Yeah. It's just good governance. But, that should not be done. the question is at the expense of what right uh, is, the, is the relevant question And ultimately what we we're saying is balanced budgets are good things if you can do them, but they cannot and should not be fetishized uh, to the extent that you forever handcuff your ability to actually govern your own country. Uh, and, and that's what this constitutional convention proposes to do. Um, it would surprise no one uh, here to know that the, uh, that a lot of the, a uh, lot of the, uh, money that has gone into the lobbying efforts and, uh, the political campaign efforts that have elected people who support this constitutional convention and have pushed forward very specifically comes from one way or another from the Koch brothers and their friends. Uh, this is, I mean, th- this is, uh, I mean, this, 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 actually has the potential to be genuinely catastrophic it is deeply unlikely that they will get uh, another uh, six more legislatures to agree to hold the Constitutional Convention. But this thing has gotten way too close. It's gotten way too close.
1: Yeah, we'll move on in a second. uh, But just in case um, people didn't listen to me yammering uh, solo on the podcast last week, because once you saw that Frank wasn't and you were just like, hey, fuck it, I don't want to listen to just Jacobs. Um, A welcome respite,
0: according to the New York Times Review. Yes.
1: I was trying to make a point that there are a couple different ways that republicans look about taxes um and that's a way that this deficit thing we're not going to spend time on the tax plans right now because i'm still giving it a no better than a three and five chance of actually becoming a, a becoming re- reality um But uh, there are Republicans who look at deficits and taxes as we're just going to cut taxes because people like it and they will continue to elect us and it doesn't matter what the impact of the deficit is. I call this the uh, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan collective of, uh, yeah, we're going to spend a gazillion dollars on arming ourselves so that we scare the the Russians so that they collapse uh, and we're not going to care what it does to the deficit. Or we're going to go to war in Iraq, but I'm going to cut taxes because my popularity is ass right now and I'm a Republican and that's what I'm supposed to do. That's sort of class one. Class two are the people who strongly believe in the idea that taxes are a way of giving the government more money than they should ever have. And if we get rid of taxes, we can cut programs to the point that when, as I said last week, Grover Norquist's quote of, I'd like to be able to drown it in a bathtub. There is, a, there is a strong group of Republicans, Paul Ryan, um, uh, certainly amongst them, who uh, their view of taxes is less is better, because less means the government can do less, and we can get rid of government programs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's this third class, which sort of overlaps with the second class, who are you know uh, um, zealots for the Laffer curve and trickle-down economics, where if you cut taxes to a certain point, it's actually going to make the economy go boom, and everybody's going to win because everybody gets to marry a supermodel who rides into their wedding on a unicorn.
0: Yeah. There's some, there's definitely some underpants gnomes logic at work here.
1: Yeah. There's some significant underpants gnomes logic in this. Um, but, uh, keep this all in mind as the tax bills make their way through the house and Senate and how somehow all of these people who for years railed against, uh, Barack Obama and what he was doing with the deficit, uh, who suddenly don't give a shit about the deficit. Um, and it'll be interesting to see, um, some of the quote-unquote deficit hawks um, who are running for re-election as opposed to Flake and and Corker who can say no pretty easily. Um, And if Rand Paul, uh, I would like to spend time on this story about Rand Paul, but it is
0: just so strange that I don't think we should. I would like, let's talk about it. There's another, there's a shoe waiting to drop on this thing. I'd like to get into it when it drops. But For those who aren't following it, Rand Paul got the absolute holy hell kicked out of him in his front yard. Check it out
1: yeah it, it's it the story started uh i think it came out on Saturday, and people were very confused by it because it didn't make a lot of sense uh right wing media was saying that the the next door neighbor if you looked on his twitter feed and facebook that he's a lefty loon um and somehow lives in kentucky um but uh uh the story wasn't getting a lot of pickup, and you saw um i I follow a lot of um what I call uh, Never Trump Republicans uh, on Twitter, I I find them interesting to follow, people like Seth Mandel and and John Podhoretz from Commentary, um, some other people, uh, they were sort of up in arms that if this was a Democrat who had been attacked, the media would be covering it 24 seven. And my reaction was, uh, there's a reason this isn't being covered and it's because whatever we think is the rationale for this attack, and there never really is a rationale for an attack like this, but whatever we think was going on is not what happened. And uh, I kind of sarcastically said to somebody the other day that this is over like some ferns and pagonias or something. Uh, somebody else had tweeted that we're going to find out that there was some kind of love triangle going on. I don't think that, uh, but there's clearly a fern and pagonia uh, uh, aspect to this. I don't know what you have to do with, you know, your dried leaves that results in six, six broken ribs and a contus lung. Yeah. But Rand Paul somehow managed to do that.
0: Sure. This may, and I, you know, I think, yeah, so there's, there's another shoe that's, way, that's going to drop on this thing. We'll figure it out. Although I will say, I do want to fight you on one statement there. When you say there's no rationale for an attack like this, you know, there is an argument to be made that there are two things that you should give someone if they ask for it, a straight answer and an ass kicking. And that may be what has happened here. But there's another shoe out there. We look forward to it dropping and maybe we can get into it more then.
1: Right. It's also, you know, being attacked by your neighbor for unkempt lawn or whatever the current issue was, is sort of peak libertarianism. An extre- and
0: an extremely Kentucky, I might add.
1: Yeah. And really appropriate that it was Rand Paul that, uh, again, you know, no one should be attacked. And we hope the senator, you know, they pulls through this all okay and that the story, I don't, we don't know. Like, this is just so bizarre that this happened. This is the kind of thing that ordinarily we would take ship to, but it was too covered by the mass media to be obscure enough. Yeah. Like if it was a state senator, maybe like that would be something that like we would go to Lexington to find out what the fuck was going on. But this thing is just so strange. Um, And we're going to use that as the end point of discussing the uh, uh, constitutional conventions, balanced budgets, deficits and the uh, um, Republicans tax plans. Um, Just (laughs) buckle up and watch the government turn to shit over the next six weeks, because there's a lot of things that they have to do just to keep the government going. Um, that they seem totally uninterested in actually doing plus there's that awesome 60 day clock that Donald trump started on october 15th by um Uh decertifying the iran deal that they have 60 days to come up with something else to do. So, you know Fuck it. Let's put more stuff on the desks of people who are too incompetent to do anything Uh, what do we turn to next frank?
0: With that, I just want to comment very briefly uh, on uh, on the newest iteration of the Purge uh, film series. Uh, as you know, there have been three of them. Uh, the first was a was a uh, standard uh, horror movie, the sort of break and enter house, uh, breaking and entering uh, with violent intent. Uh, horror movie, uh, the second of the Purge series, expanded it to include society. The third, very political. And the fourth one just occurred in the high court in Saudi Arabia. Uh, where the uh, the crown prince, uh, son of the prince, has consolidated his power base by essentially by using an anti-corruption forum that his father set up for him to immediately arrest all of his potential political enemies, including his uncle.
1: Yeah. So um, the the Saudi royal family is huge. There are several hundred princes. princes. Uh, they all have fiefdoms and money and, and jobs in the government. MBS, who is the crown prince, meaning he will uh, he is currently. Uh, expected to be the next king, um, decided to arrest a whole bunch of his relatives um, over the weekend with no warning uh, and putting them up in the Ritz. And my question is, if they're getting points for their stay with at the Ritz? But it's oh my also, god,
0: this whole thing, this whole thing is a loyalty plan scam. I yeah. love it dearly. Yeah, MBS incidentally stands for uh, Mohammed bin Salman. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, 32, I
1: believe, uh, he's in charge of the military. He's in charge of the economy. He's in charge of basically everything. Um, and it was, uh, very strange that, uh, he sort of was just sort of anointed, uh, about a year and a half ago, two years ago now. Um, and of all people, our own crown prince, Jared Kushner, um, they have apparently become buddy buddies. Uh, and David Ignatius in a column, uh, two days ago discussing the purge and sort of the impacts of it, Made mention that in jared's recent trip to saudi. Uh, he and the crown prince stayed up till four o'clock in the morning um, strategizing Um, and one can only imagine that the trump white house was very aware of what was going to happen Um, There's a lot of different moving pieces with everything that's going on in the region Uh, the purge definitely has to be connected to the resignation of the prime minister of lebanon uh who (laughs) gave his resignation address from Riyadh. incidentally um there's a lot of very strange things going on in the Middle East right now, uh, very consequential things, very important things, very scary things, uh, considering what kind of powder keg that 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 region is. Um, and on top of all of this, uh, there are reports uh, today and yesterday that the Trump administration, sometime around the first of the year, will announce their plan for the um, peace plan for the Israelis and Palestinians. Um, you know, just just you know, throw a little bit more tinder on the fire. Um, we're going to have to, Frank. We're going to have to, you know. Go through our, our our black books and find find a smart person to really dive into
0: this with us. Yeah, this is the the the, the internal politics of of uh, Saudi Arabia and and what it means on a regional level or not or not so, is is not something that uh, that amateurs should be engaging with, uh, you know, or at least should do so only briefly. Uh, if the uh, history of America and the British Empire both have taught us that taught us anything, I'd like to think it's that. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're but uh, but this is this we want to flag this for our. Uh, for our listeners as something that is, this is as something that is, is worth keeping an eye on. Um, this is,
1: this is a big this deal. Is a story,
0: this, is a, this is a big deal. It's a story worth following. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, there's obviously big stuff going on uh, with Trump's trip to Asia and uh, um, uh, prevaricating against it with the North Koreans, with the Chinese and everything. Uh, the North Korea thing, um, uh, Graham Allison, who's a former deputy uh, secretary of defense. Now he's been a longtime uh, professor at the Belfer center at, at uh, the Kennedy school at Harvard. Uh, he wrote a book recently called the Thucydides trap about uh, China and America. Uh, he had a very good op-ed. We'll put it up on the Twitter feed. Um, he had a good op-ed, uh, either yesterday or today about North Korea and what to expect. Um, and he kind of lays out three different possibilities. Um, America kind of just sucking it up and saying, okay, now they're a nuclear power. Uh, America bombing them or, uh, as, uh, uh, professor Allison said, uh, um, the lucky strike option of some kind of deal is reached. Uh, so it's a bad situation over there uh, with no real good solutions. But this thing going on in Saudi, uh, based on the region, uh, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, the crown prince recently came out and said he's going to start pushing for a moderate form of Islam, uh, which is to say something because Wahhabism is is Saudi and it's something that the royal family has pushed for a long time, or if not support, not pushed, certainly supported. Um so we're gonna have to find some smart people to come on the podcast over the next couple of weeks and, and have these conversations with, with the two of us or, or potentially just Frank if I'm uh, um, unavailable. Um, but with that, I think we'll, we'll cut this uh, where we're at because uh, Frank's head cold is getting to him and uh, well, I'll just be really frank about it, folks. I gotta pee. Um, so with that, thank you so much for joining us. Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Really, please do subscribe. We need those subscription numbers to get up. Um, uh, rate us; those ratings are really important. It will attract the Casper mattresses folks uh, or the Purple mattress, all these other different mattress companies. Um, and follow us on Twitter at, at taking ship. and that's ship with a P, as in pander. Um, and check out the Facebook page as well. It seems that people are peeking into that
0: occasionally, and we'll try to get better at uh, updating that. It's a great place to go to find deals on Casper mattresses. Listen, yes. all this this podcast if this podcast this podcast is about anything, it's about moving mattresses.
1: Yeah, we will get everybody. Wow. I was about to say, we're going to get everybody into bed.
0: That really sounds <laughs> yes, bad. Yes. Yes. That's exactly it. That's, that's precisely it. Taking ship. We will get everybody into bed. Why are you all running from us? Where are you going? Come back. We, oh God. Yeah. Oh God, we've done we just. That.
1: We just took a bad turn. Something bad happened.
0: We've done uh, that, But
1: with that, now that we have all of our uh, mariners and nautical equipment back, Frank, where are we headed this week?
0: This week, this week, we take ship to Lakeland, Florida. Uh, presumably, uh, we go via Tampa Bay and then upriver from there. Um, I know this is a development that will surprise a large number of people, none more so than myself, I assure you, uh, who know that taking ship's general policy with regard to the state of Florida is to absolutely avoid the place at all costs. Uh, however, this week, uh, police there, in, again, in Lakeland, Florida, arrested a local resident for the crime of DUI. Uh, but what makes this particularly interesting is the vehicle in question was a horse, Yes, they arrested a woman for DWI for riding a horse while drunk. Now listen, we are nothing if not friends to law and order, specifically the law of gravity and the order of the Knights of St. John Hospitaller, but this cannot be allowed to stand. Uh, This uh, arrest is a personal affront to the glorious history of my family and the family of many other Americans whose ancestors rode horses almost exclusively in a state of besotted inebriation, drunkenly galloping across this great continent as they made unwise and immoral choices and broke their collarbones willy-nilly. The modern affront, this modern affront to that history of sozzled equestrianism impoverishes us all, and our best, indeed, nay, our only option is to get absolutely hammered, posse up with as many horses as we can capture, and attempt the sorriest jailbreak in Florida history. Friends, we take ship now for Florida. Take care, everybody.